0: This is Infrastructure Junkies.
1: Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development.
0: Hello, Infrastructure Junkies, and welcome to the show. We today have a very special guest, but before we get into that, I want to tell you that as we were wrapping up season three and we were planning this season finale, Dave was like, let's, let's do something awesome. And I'm like, yeah, let's do something awesome. And this is, by the way, this is our 57th episode. Can you 57th, believe that? 57th, yep. Thanks for hanging with us all this time, guys. We've had a great time. But I told Dave, I said, I happen to know the most interesting man in right of way. And Dave's like, you do? I'm like, yes, I do. And everybody loves him. We're going to have him on. So I called the most interesting man in right of way. And very apropos, he says to me, oh, I'm uh, yeah, I was just leaving uh, my boxing class. I'm like, oh, you you box too. So this person never, ever ceases to amaze me and has a resume and a bio that you wouldn't believe. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest, by the way, guys. It's Donnie Sherwood, okay? Donald J. Sherwood is an MAI. He's an SRWA. He's an RWAC. He's the owner of Donald J. Sherwood LLC and specializes in appraisal review and teaching. He is a previous recipient of IRWA's Frank C. Balfour Professional of the Year Award as well as the W. Howard Armstrong Instructor of the Year Award. Donnie has been an appraiser for 43 years. And now that's that's kind of the short and sweet bio. There's some more things you need to know about Donnie. Donnie is a world traveler. He's been to more countries than I have states, I think, if you want to know the truth. Donnie has a, I believe it's like a blue, we'll get into this with him. We might need to ask about this. He's in a band. I think it's like a bluegrass band called the Holy Pickers. Our chapter, chapter 36, Donnie's my buddy in chapter 36 in North Texas. We have a scholarship program every year for incoming college students. And our chapter named the scholarship after Donnie Sherwood, because he's such a great teacher and such an advocate for education. Donnie's a twin. Donnie is a retired U.S. Marine. Apparently, he boxes now. He graduated from Southwestern University, and he got his master's at Aggieland. He's an Aggie. He's an Eagle Scout. He's a graduate of officer candidate school. Like, officer and a gentleman stuff, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah. and I have questions about that. I wonder if you... Was Lou Gossett
2: Jr. your drill instructor? No, but... He had arms that were as big as a lot of people's waist.
0: <laughs> I bet. So, anybody, anyway, I could go on and on about this guy, but he's here with us, Mister Donnie Sherwood. Thank you so much for joining us. How you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for joining us. Um, and I understand somebody will no doubt call me or email me. I understand that there are only three people in the currently in the International Right of Way Association who have won the balfour and the howard armstrong instructor of the year awards and two of them are on this podcast right now and i'm not one of them
0: that's pretty wow. cool who's the other one
1: i think the other one's gordon mcnair from that's Canada. right
0: that's right well that's a, i'm man i'm happy to be in that club wow that's really cool
1: i'm not in the club I'm i don't sorry. even get one of those
0: awards <laughs> i'm sorry. Okay, before we get into this, I just want to say this is our season finale. If you miss us during the holidays and you want more Infrastructure Junkies, go to our website, infrastructurejunkies.com, and click on exclusive content. We do an unfiltered version of this show every week. You can listen to it. You can watch it if you want to. But go to our website, go subscribe for that, and keep in touch with us over the break before we come back. And we'll continue
1: with the unfiltered which is a completely independent podcast of this one, will continue through the holidays. So it's not right. just this podcast, Unfiltered. There's a separate podcast that's called Unfiltered, which can be gained by subscription.
0: And we're not taking a break. We'll be here every week for that one. Right. So, Donnie, here's the thing. We are talking about the most interesting man in right-of-way and then happened upon an article that you wrote in the latest episode or the latest, what is it called? right Way magazine issue, the latest issue, issue. not an episode of the right of Way magazine and i think the article was called beware of big thicket an appraisal tale and it's you know we all in right of way have stories i've got stories you've got stories you've got stories this is not an appraisal tale this is an appraisal adventure it's a death-defying job that you were on so we read that article and i got to tell you donnie we got a lot of questions my first question was what's big thicket and I'm embarrassed to say that I live in Texas, and I had not heard of, or not been to, or heard of. It's called Big Thicket National Preserve, and I it's down by Beaumont and Houston, isn't that right? Yes. So Big Thicket, you're saying is it's huge, like thousands of acres? Hundred
2: thirteen thousand plus or minus.
0: Wow! And people. And,
2: and it, it consists of eleven ecosystems. So you have everything from swampland to islands in the middle of the Atchison River to upland piney woods well, yellow pine.
0: Oh, wow. And do people camp there and go recreate?
2: It's mostly recreation, but to be honest, I've never been there other than when I was working on this project. Wow. You know, it's a long drive down there, so yeah. I just haven't been. I wanna go.
0: I don't know why you would wanna go back after what we're about to share with our <laughs> listeners you experienced there at the, at the beginning. Now, let me tell the the folks listening, Donnie apparently was there as a very young, very green, new right-of-way professional. And I think you said in the article, this was one of your very first assignments. Is that right? That's correct. And you duck around after this? This is insane to me. I loved it. You did? I loved it. You were an adventurer. I know that. Okay, so let's talk about it. What were you doing there? Why were you there? Well, we were there
2: to appraise a part of an of an island owned by a big timber company and the government was acquiring this island as part of the National Preserve.
0: Oh, so they were acquiring the island.
2: Yes, and it was owned by a large timber company. And so part of our assignment, the Jim Norwood, who was my boss at the time, Jim was a certified timber expert. Part of our job was we did our own timber cruises, and that's where you go out and it's a scientific method for measuring the amount of timber present. You basically lay out grid lines and run compass lines and you go so many paces and then you count the trees in the area and record them whether they're hardwood or softwood and how many board feet are in each area and you do plottage. But you have to run those compass lines in a straight line and part of the problem here was a large portion of the island was underwater. Hmm. Uh, or there were parts of the river that flowed through the island. And so we would have to cross sometimes deep water. A lot of times we were in water up to our chest. Uh, So it was kind of creepy. (laughs) Yes,
1: kind of. So let let me ask, let me back up and ask a, a, a fundamental appraisal question because I'm an attorney by trade. And what I know about appraisal is only through my own profession. I'm not trained in that are are there situations where the timber on a tract of land is more valuable than the dirt that it grows from? Hmm. Just just explain to, you know, adults like me, how these timber cruises work. Do you separately value the timber and then the land, or is it a contributing
2: value or cost to cure or how's it, how's it handled? No, as a matter of fact, that's one of the errors a lot of appraisers make and would be a violation of the unit rule, which is not allowed under the yellow book in the unit rule. Prohibits you from valuing the timber at one value, at its market value, and adding that to the land value. You have to look at sales with a similar amount of timber and make adjustments based on that. So it's its contributory value of the timber to the land.
0: Is it li- handled like how you would handle crops? Yes. Interesting.
2: But what about the fact that this land, much of this land was submerged? It still had marketable timber. And it had a significant amount of marketable timber. In the 1920s, a large portion of the big thicket areas were the timber was cypress. And cypress is a long lasting wood that was used in construction. Well, in the 1920s, a lot of the timber companies would come in and cut all the cypress out. Mm -hmm. And that left partial stumps, uh, sometimes above, most of the time above water, where they would cut that cypress out and so mainly we were looking for hardwoods like your water oaks and walnuts those type of hardwoods versus your marketable pine or what we call yellow pine and do you have to document
1: each tree individually or do you just count them in your head or do you put a number on them or a
2: brand or how does that work Uh, we had a tally board it's called a tally board and that was my job is to run the tally board You would measure within the circumference of a circle, there's a specific measuring to measure the diameter of the trees. It's a tree stick, and I'm sure it has a more dignified name for timber cruisers, but it's basically a stick. And it would tell you how much board feet based on the diameter of the tree and then also estimate the height of the tree.
0: People talk about how relocation is so complicated. Uh, this sounds really complicated to me, Donnie, like having to know all the different types of trees and measure them and lay grid lines and have a tally board and a tree stick. And and this is just talking about trees. I mean, you guys appraise a lot more than just trees, but this sounds really complicated.
2: It is, and and that's why most appraisers, uh, Jim Norwood was rather unique in these skills. The fact that he had a degree in forestry, he knew mm. how to do timber cruises, And he was an appraiser. He was an MAI. And that's why the Justice Department hired him.
0: Well, no kidding. It sounds like a pretty unique set of skills, if you ask me.
2: Yes, he was a great mentor for me.
0: I can't believe you did this at the beginning of your career.
2: I'm
1: still trying to figure a few things out. So you're running the tally board and your partner says, okay, here's a cypress tree. Do you put a ribbon around it or do you put a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree to make sure you don't double count it? How does that work?
2: No, we would just count the trees within a circle, Uh and then just measure those trees, and then we'd go so many paces along the compass line, and again, we would value another portion. So in this case, I believe we were doing a 10% timber cruise. That means we're looking at, out of all the trees, out of all the land area, we're looking at 10% where we're actually doing the tree count, and then... Based on that count, then you estimate how much timber is over the whole property.
1: Okay. I want to go back to one thing that I don't, I'm still unclear on is if some of these trees are growing out of the water, the dirt is under the water. Are you telling me that that property still has underlying value if you clear the trees off? Very little.
2: Right. Very little. It would be treated much like we do floodplain. Uh, oh. evaluation of flood point but in this case all of the trees that we were physically counting were mostly on upland when we were in water deep water there wouldn't be any marketable trees in that particular circle
0: let me go back to the the idea of laying the grid lines is this a physical like a a string or something I are you literally laying something down
2: no I'm shooting a compass line.
0: You're shooting a compass line. Okay. Is that, can, and you can do that over water? Sure. Okay.
2: Uh, you just have to find single path. Okay. And, and that was my job, was running the compass line. I learned how to do that in the Boy Scouts, as a Boy Scout. And then, again, in the Marine Corps, we were required to do compass marches.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like they had the right people on the job. Between the Eagle Scout, the Marine, the Forestry Major, the Mai, sounds like it was a pretty pretty crack team there. It was
2: fun. The interesting thing is the wildlife we encountered.
0: Well, that's you talk about fun. This is like this is like the stuff of nightmares for me, Donnie. Number one, it sounds like you were in the water a lot, like not in a pool, not in the ocean, like in murky water with creatures, right? And it's, right. it sounds to me like. There was one point in the article you talked about uh, your partner out there, Jim, was not a great swimmer and you had to pull him up a couple times. Like, did we have near, was he drowning? Do we have near drownings on this project? No, he just, uh,
2: Jim was not a tall man. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not either, but I was running a compass line. I could hear him behind me and he stepped in a hole oh. and went under. And so I just reached back and pulled him up.
0: Besides the possibility of drowning or stepping in a hole, we encounter things on this project, like, "Oh, I think you said, I know there's a, a couple of snake stories, and you mentioned a snake I'd never heard of called a pilot snake. We've talked we've got feral hogs and deer, nutrius and massive spiders. And this is yes. fun. This was fun for you. Tell us about uh, Tell us about the snake.
2: Well, the biggest story, we were in some of the deep water. We were about chest high. And I was in front running the compass line, and I was standing beside a cypress, what we call a cypress knee, Mm K-N-E-E. And I heard a distinctive rattlesnake, the rattle go off, and it was probably six inches from my head. And I told Jim, I said very calmly, uh, please don't move. I've got a rattlesnake by my head and he goes oh it's not a snake it's me and he tugs at a vine and boy he really went off then you could hear it go off and and i said please don't do that again (laughs) 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 and i said i'm gonna try to back out of here without slipping and falling because we were in water and mud so i slowly backed out and we got to a, a high point where we could look down into the knee and uh, sure enough, there was that rattlesnake. It's an eastern timberback, but what made it unusual is it had a red marking on its head, mm. and uh, I had never seen an eastern r- rattlesnake like that. And I was more scared of the water moccasins. Yeah, but uh, this one, you know, at least a rattlesnake gives you a warning. Water moccasins don't, and water moccasins I found to be extremely aggressive. Yep, uh,
0: oh, they'll come at uh, you, right?
2: Yes, they they actually followed me for, and I'm not exaggerating, 50, 75 yards. He kept striking at me, and I had a stick, and I'm trying to beat him away. And he finally gave up, thank goodness. Jeez. But this pilot rattlesnake was really interesting. I had never heard of that or seen it. And at the end of the day, to get to this island, we well, had used four-wheel drive, and we would to the banks of the river and there was an old cabin there where an elderly couple lived. They had no vehicle, so they had a, a John boat that would take them down to Beaumont. Uh, they would go once a month, pick up some groceries and check. And uh, so we made an arrangement for him to take us to the island on his John boat. And he'd take us up the river, drop us off. We'd tell him where we thought we would be at the end of the day and depending on how many uh, lines we were running that day, uh, compass lines. We got to the pickup point, and he was there every day. And we were out there probably five, six days doing this project. I was telling him about the snake, and he said, well, it says you're lucky it didn't hit you. It says you'd have never made it out of the woods alive. Oh, my and that gosh. was kind of scary. Kind of scary. And, uh, at the end of the day, everything worked out.
0: Well you're here you're, you live to tell the tale, that's for sure. So I've experienced those water moccasins um, being aggressive like you were talking about. I mean the pilot snake sounds like something very unusual and deadly, but I've thought about there was one time I was in a lake with some friends on a boat and a water moccasin came right at us. We all got in the boat and we were okay, but we, we were thinking like you might if you're on a boat in the middle of a lake and you get bit by a water moccasin, like you can die from that you're a long way from oh, yeah. you're a long way from getting help so besides the pilot snake being deadly I think that other critter that was chasing you for what would you say 70 50 yards 75 yards might all might have also taken you out
2: every day for lunch we would we had a sack lunch that we would take with us and we'd find a dry spot to sit and eat our lunch and if I had not seen snake number six by lunchtime I knew there'd be one to join us oh, and sure enough that was almost every day. I would count the number of snakes each day before lunch, so I knew to watch out at lunch. Well,
1: I don't, I don't know how you did that and how you can be so casual about it. And let me, let me put this into my own personal perspective. And it was 45 years ago. This, this is my experience with a water moccasin. 45 years ago. I was wading in what's called Back Bay, which stretches between northeastern North Carolina and southeastern Virginia, and you can wade out almost as far as the eye can see, and so the bottom is like, I don't know, six, eight inches of mud, so you don't go quickly, and you can't swim it because it's not really deep enough to swim, and we're bass fishing with rubber worms, and my dad is throwing up too. there's a dock out there, he's throwing up there, and two water moccasins come off of the dock towards me and at that age i was just a kid it's about shoulder to eye level and donnie that was literally the most terrified i've ever been in my life ever bar none and that wasn't near what you experienced with your water moxin which chased you for 75 feet oh gosh and you're so casual about it he said it was fun it would no it's not fun
0: (laughs) (laughs) hey what's okay speaking of the critters before we move on from the critters you also talked about feral hogs. I'm familiar, deer, familiar. Let's talk about nutrias and massive spiders. What, what is a nu- nutrias, nutria?
2: Big rat. It's, like a- it's a big rat. It looks teeth like a beaver. <laughs> <laughs> a body like a rat. Yuck. It's brought in from over, overseas. It's an imported Southeast Asian animal, is my understanding. And uh, they bred like rabbits. But people do eat them. What? People eat Nutria.
0: Really? Oh, yeah. Tastes you know, like there's chicken? There a
2: park in Grand Prairie where there was a family of Nutria there. I think they pretty much got eaten up. Are they aggressive? No. Do they swim? Oh, yes.
0: I, I'm going to have to Google a picture of a Nutria.
1: Yeah. No. They're ugly. They are. I wouldn't eat one. Have you eaten one before? No. <laughs> I, you didn't get that hungry for lunch, right? Not
0: that hungry. Well, no. it, it's, I always thought a Nutria was like the chupacabra, like some made-up critter. But apparently that's a real thing. All right.
1: Now, now what about the spiders? Are they just abnormally large spiders or were they,
2: I guess all spiders
1: are venomous, but.
2: Well, you're walking the compass line, so your head is kind of down watching Mm -hmm. the compass. And all of a sudden you run into a spider web and, and the spiders, some of them were quite large and not like tarantulas or anything, just big spiders. The snakes I don't like, but spiders I really don't like. More than and, snakes, uh, a little bit.
0: A little oh, bit arachnophobic. I don't want any of those things. None. Well, t-
1: tell me why you don't like the spiders. I don't really know. Ju- they're just creepy. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> That's the best answer ever. They are creepy. Yeah. Well, I, I live in a on a wooded lot where I live now, and I used to be so scared of spiders. I mean, if I if there were a spider in my house, I'd go, "Okay, well, we have to burn the house down." And I've kind of got an appreciation of spiders now because we have some of those. I don't know what they're called. They're like yellowy and black and they build these beautiful webs and they'll hang out for weeks at a time. And I would, mm-hmm. I don't mess with them. They're not aggressive. In fact, my kids have enjoyed like taking them an insect and throwing it in the nest and watching them eat it. It's I I kinda like I don't I don't mind spiders anymore. I'm not scared. And I've also seen three tarantulas on my property. So you got that to deal with. Yeah, my
2: my wife was in Haiti on a mission trip. And they had tarantulas in Haiti, and they nicknamed one that was in their tent a lot Hubcap, because he was as big as a hubcap.
0: Oh,
1: I can't even imagine. But they're harmless, aren't they?
0: They are. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think they can. They could could bite you, but uh, yeah, they're not aggressive.
2: No.
1: Infrastructure Junkies, thank you so much for tuning in to another show. I wanted to let you know that this particular episode is generously sponsored by Blackbird Right-of-Way. They're a DBE-certified, women-owned Right-of-Way company. Now, while Blackbird is a full-service company, it's best known for its expertise in complex relocations. As you already know, taking classes or even getting a certification is no substitute for boots-on-the-ground experience. Kristen Bennett and her team have just that experience with almost any type of relocation conceivable. They'll do one parcel all the way up to a hundred, anywhere in the United States. Look them up at BlackbirdRightOfWay.com and make them a part of your team. That's BlackbirdRightOfWay.com. Kristen Bennett and I sure hope that you're enjoying this episode. When you finish this show, please check out our new website at InfrastructureJunkies.com. That's InfrastructureJunkies.com. While you're there, please sign up for our mailing list, and you might also check out our new exclusive content. We have a new second podcast called Infrastructure Junkies Unfiltered, which is published weekly, and we discuss whatever is on our minds. Check it out. Also, follow us on the Twitters at IJPod, linkedin facebook instagram and we're even on tiktok you can find us anywhere thanks for listening so so in this particular appraisal problem how long did the entire process take how many days were
2: you going out there living these horrors we were probably on the island I believe it was five or six days. I can't remember exactly, but it was at least five. Oh, and we stayed at this little hotel in Beaumont, and we would get up every morning around 4 a.m., go and have breakfast at a all-night diner, and then drive out to this place. And uh, the little couple that lived there were very nice. They were so sweet. And at the end of it, she made mayha, which is a wild grape mayha, and she made mayha jelly and gave us each a jar of her homemade mayha jelly
0: i've never heard of mayha is
1: that like um i think your article said that was related to the grape is it like a muscadine or i've never heard of it before
2: I, that's the only place i've ever heard of it is in east texas mayha it's a wild growing grape like berry was it good yes it was very good it was interesting these people I was trying to remember if they had electricity. I don't think so. They burned uh, kerosene lamps, and for uh, mosquito protection, which are mosquitoes quite abundant there, they would take pine needles and pile them up on the uh, upwind side of the house and let the smoke blow through their cabin. That's how they controlled their mosquitoes.
0: Wow, this sounds very... What's the movie or the book and the movie Where the Crawdads Sing? Like just kind of living out there uh-huh. in the in the marshy land and making it. Oh man, I don't think that's the life for me, but it sounds like they were very innovative and very sweet and took good care of you guys when you were out there. I have kind of a random question. I know you're in and out of the water and you're fighting off nature. <laughs> what did you guys wear? Were you wearing like waders? Were you wearing regular clothes, swimsuits? Like wh- what does one wear to to stomp around in the water and the and the muck out there?
2: I had blue jeans and boots, uh, lace-up boots.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I think Jim had snake boots that he wore that would lace up.
0: That doesn't um, do you a lot of good when the, snakes, when the snakes are swimming at you.
2: <laughs> yeah. Wow. But uh, just regular clothes.
1: So, Donnie, I understand this was around 1978 and probably fairly early in your career, and I can tell you that if I had had this experience that you had that as you it in the Right Away magazine, I'd be looking for another career. I'd be like, no more. But apparently
2: you stuck with it. Did you ever have any second thoughts? No, sir. Not at all. It was my dream job. I had worked at a bank between graduate school and undergraduate. I worked at a bank and I wanted a job that I didn't have to sit behind a desk all day. Hey, but I, I enjoyed <laughs> some of that. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the writing. I enjoyed the all of the aspects of appraisal, which is very multifaceted. I enjoyed it all. I found it very rewarding. And I was very blessed to have good mentors. And then later in my career, I had a great team of young appraisers to work with. Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: I know you've been mentor to tons of people uh, that I know of. So, yeah, that's an important thing. And it's cool to be able to pass that down.
1: One thing that just struck me, and... and- this is probably one of the many differences between you and me, Donnie, why you were so resilient when faced with the critters of nature. And I would turn tail and run is you're, you're an Eagle scout, right? And yes, did,
2: sir. did that come into play during this assignment? It actually did. I was used to running. I mean, we did a lot of compass work when mm-hmm. I was in scouts as a boy scout, we had to learn how to run compass lines. And so I was very accustomed to that. And I grew up in South Texas, so I was familiar with the critters.
1: H- have you ever been bitten by a venomous snake? No. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I never want to be. <laughs>
0: no, thank you.
1: That might be the end. I know people who have been, and it, by copperheads specifically, uh-huh. not rattlesnakes. Me too. But it, it's, it sounds like something that none of us want to ever have happen to us.
0: My mom's little shih tzu got bit by a uh, copperhead. She was fine.
2: Oh, <laughs> it would drive light. <laughs> well, I was on a working on another project several years later. It was a sewer line project. I stepped on a snake, <laughs> and I literally jumped in the arms of Jim Lucas, who was the <laughs> right-of-way person with the Trinity River Authority.
0: Oh, yeah. you stepped on it? What kind of snake was it?
2: It was just a black snake. Well, I, I always called them racers. I don't know yeah. the proper name.
1: Yeah. Yeah tell you this you might have jumped into his arms i would have gotten on his shoulders (laughs) even if it was a black snake
0: it doesn't matter what kind of snake it is if you're stepping on a snake you're gonna jump so you've obviously had other encounters with snakes besides that one project why is is appraisal work always death defying is this is this a theme this isn't like you saw a bug i mean this was like you were in in water with poisonous snakes and gigantic spiders and nutrias whatever that is have you had other jobs like
2: that most of them are not that dangerous Good.
0: That's good. Have you had any other encounters with crazy wildlife?
2: Yes. In fact, we were working on the Dallas Cowboys Stadium, and we had one of the homeowners there had a zoo inside her home and in the outside. What? And, uh, a zoo? Inside, well, it seemed like that. They, she had birds and cages and snakes and. They were in cages in the house. And then you walk out back and uh, a goose and chickens and a goat. One of the goats actually jumped on one of my appraisers. And I think it was a male goat. And uh, <laughs> I wish I had had my camera ready, it would have been a great right of way picture.
0: I would assume um, so. Yes.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But other than that, you know, most of the time it's fairly normal.
0: Fairly normal, right? Well, you started with a bang in your career, that's for sure.
1: Well, I've got one more question for you, and I noticed, um, of course, Donnie. Although I don't believe we've we've ever met in person, your reputation precedes you, and I know that you've been overseas many, many times to teach, and I think yes, you've sir. taught in Saudi Arabia. You've taught yes, in sir. China, and that doesn't speak to me personally. It's not something that I would want to do. What inspired you to want to go to Saudi Arabia and China to teach appraisal courses or IRWA courses?
2: Well, I felt honored to be asked when they asked me to go. I guess my first overseas trip was to China. Well, I had been previously to Russia and Lithuania. Wow, teaching there, and that was right after the wall came down, and my job was to teach the appraisal process to the Russians. Wow. Um, That was interesting because it was so foreign to their understanding of what Americans look for in purchasing real estate. That trip to China, the first trip, my wife went with me, which was nice. They uh, paid for her to come too, but the food... Neither one of us cared much for a lot of the food. We had some <laughs> meals we liked, but we did find a McDonald's, which was fine.
0: <laughs> the <laughs> Golden uh, Arches, tried and a, true. Better yeah. than a chicken foot and some broth. But,
2: yes, the chicken foot was interesting. Just China in general was, was an interesting country. They asked me to come back, and I went back a second time to help them with some appraisal problems, dealing with right-of-way. Mm-hmm.
1: You mean, I I just thought the communist government just took what they wanted, and that, you know, too bad.
2: So sad. It was interesting. I went to an appraiser's office in China, and up on the wall, they had a strip map. I knew exactly what it was. It looked just like ours. The writing was different. But I could look at it and say, hey, they're fixing to build a highway. Wow. And the way they fund their highways is interesting. The land, they have urban zoning, and they have rural zoning and the valuation or the compensation is based on zoning. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course the rural zoning, it's so many years of income from your production and that's all you get. Wow. Uh, In one case, they gave the man a job and a bicycle, (laughs) <laughs> uh, that was his compensation. Well,
1: I was going to ask: Do they do, in China? Do they? Uh, I guess they don't even know the term "just compensation." They just say here's some chickens and uh, a pot or a bicycle, and you can work at the market down the road. Like they don't pay money.
2: Well, they pay money, but it's it's not based on market value. The farmer out there gets paid a farmer's wage for his land that they need, and the government will buy twice as much as they need. Mm-hmm. and then rezone it to an urban zoning and sell that off their surplus land off oh. and that's how they pay for the project whoa very creative
0: it's creative all right it's not really how we do things over here is it
2: no no
0: <laughs> wow
2: but Saudi Arabia was interesting the kind of the i guess the strange part i was is staying in an Aramco compound and teaching at Aramco uh, but they asked for my blood type on my visa application. What? And it actually went on your name badge, your identification badge, so that if something happened, they know what blood to give you.
1: What do you mean if something happened? Something like what?
2: Like suicide bomber. They actually had a suicide bomber in this particular compound. It was about seven years before we were there.
0: Oh, my uh, gosh.
2: And seven people were killed. So... Okay, well,
1: I, you know that's interesting, Donnie. My next question to you was: when you went to teach at Saudi Arabia, did you ever feel
2: unsafe? No, never. And I even went downtown one day and just to see. It was a little. You were wary of what was around you, mm-hmm. but I actually went down and and they bought me the Arab get the dress, and the headdress, and all of that. So. And actually taught in it. Uh, oh, did one you? Day. Donnie, yeah, that was kind of fun.
0: You, Donnie's done some presentations for our chapter of the RWA after his travels, didn't you? Did you wear that or bring it? I think I've seen it.
2: I probably wore that one, and then also had a different outfit when I was in Nigeria. Yes. they actually came and measured me. Oh wow! Uh, I think that was the one I wore was Nigeria. To a that's chapter right. Meeting what we talked about Nigeria,
1: and I want to get to Nigeria, but first I want to know. I know that there are substantial cultural differences between many Middle Eastern countries and American culture, and is that something that you had to familiarize yourself before going? I understand you can really offend people overseas, un you know unintentionally, and I've heard that some of the Middle Eastern countries are, can be very sensitive to the way we do things.
2: Probably so, and I I'm, I'm probably did offend people unknowingly, wasn't intentional. I didn't do a lot of preparation other than just be myself and be polite and treat them the way I want to be treated, and I, I didn't have any issues in any of the places I went. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first trip to Nigeria was a little unnerving because we had an armored personnel carrier out in front of the hotel. We had to go through two different security checkpoints with teenagers with rifles.
0: Ugh. Oh, gosh. Uh,
2: and that was a little unnerving. And the Boko Haram, which is an extremist group, was less than an hour and a half drive from where we were. And so that was a little unnerving. The second time I went back, everything there, I didn't see as many weapons on the streets and that type of thing. Mm hmm.
0: Well, I, I, every time that I've, I think I've heard you do a couple of the talks about your, your travels overseas, and it's just so fascinating to me to hear the different things that you've encountered and the cultures. And it, I, it seems to me like you were really embraced in all of those spots, and they really enjoyed you being there. I've, I've actually heard some of the Nigerian IRWA members talk about what a special time that was with you.
2: Oh, and, and they were so gracious and hospitable to me. They took me out one night and treated me to dinner I can't save anything but good about that particular group of people, and that's true in all the countries I went to. They were so gracious. The Chinese presented me with some wonderful gifts, and uh, it was really nice.
1: So you've been to China, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Lithuania, Lithuania, Russia.
2: Have you taught anywhere else? Of course, I guess. Sort of like Canada. I think <laughs> Vancouver. Yeah.
0: <laughs> sort of like Canada.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's pretty well it. That's impressive. That's that extremely
0: impressive. impressive. Is there is there any of those that you wouldn't really want to go back to?
2: No, I'd go back to any of them. You would? Really? Yeah, I enjoy teaching and I enjoy different cultures. I've been blessed to being able to travel around the world. One place I don't really want to go back to is I've been to Rwanda in Africa on a mission. That was a mission trip. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rwanda was just unnerving because of the genocide that occurred there.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, I imagine. Yeah.
1: I remember that movie with Don Cheadle.
0: Oh, that's right. Terrifying,
1: terrifying movie, Hotel Rwanda.
0: Oh, that's right. Donnie, you and your wife have some big travel plans for their next year, don't you?
2: Yes, we have several. Where are you Uh, going? Well, we're going to Australia and New Zealand in January, and then in April we're taking a trip to Ireland and Scotland.
0: Oh my gosh, what a great year of travel for you. Tell our friend uh, Andrea Carolyn hello when you go to Australia. She's a fellow infrastructure junkie.
1: And you want to talk about some terrifying animals, just step off the plane into Australia. Oh boy.
0: (laughs) I can't wait to hear your tales. You know, everywhere Donnie goes, there's a story.
1: There's a snake or a spider (laughs) everywhere he goes. Something
2: I don't tell.
0: Oh, (laughs) Oh, gosh.
1: (laughs) That's probably good. Well, Donnie, it's been great having you on. Thank you for taking the time to record with us. I am nothing but impressed with your resilience in this profession. We need more people like you.
0: Absolutely.
2: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. And infrastructure junkies, thanks for listening in as we talk to the most interesting man in right of way. And we'll see you next time.